Hey, welcome my friends! You've entered Philosopher's Forge, where each episode uncovers non-conformist ways of thinking to increase our meaningful engagement with life. Every phenomenal man or woman, living or dead, possesses at least one common core attribute. A crystal clear understanding of why they think the way they think. In other words, they're dialed in on their life philosophy. So congratulations! By showing up here today, you've chosen to dial in on yours. In doing so, you invite greater health, greater wealth, and further progress towards your full potential. Thanks for being here. Hey, my friends. Welcome to the very first episode of Philosopher's Forge. I'm your host, Sterling, and I'm so excited to get into this. I'm so excited to share my thoughts with you guys. Um, I'd really like to introduce myself. The idea of this episode is to help you all be introduced to me as a new friend. I'm going to give you all the level of detail that I would give a trusted friend. And this is public, so anybody can listen to this. And I'm kind of putting myself really out there. And um, so I'm really looking forward to sharing my thoughts, my experiences. Um, if any of you are looking at the time on this episode and going, oh my gosh, this is so long. Holy cow, I can't listen to this whole thing. No problem. You don't have to. This is just an opportunity. Um, typical episode length is going to be 30 to 45 minutes. So if that's something that you're you're just here for the episode, the, the content, um, wait for the second episode to drop. So uh, which that should be arriving a, a week after this one is posted, which uh, New Year's, uh, New Year's Day is the deadline I've set for myself. <laughs> We're going to see if it worked. Um, so, welcome. My style is very much uh, tangential. Um, hopefully I said that word right. I am jump all over the place. I have a general outline for my scripts and... I don't have every word spelled out. Um, I'm pretty good at public speaking, and so I'm kind of leaning on that skill here to make this more of a meaningful experience. So it doesn't sound like a monotone, like I'm just reading from a script and telling you guys how I feel and then letting you know what my thoughts are. Just I, I can't do it like that. So hopefully you guys will follow along and enjoy that style. Um, we're still going to follow a general outline and um, always going to work on making things a little more clear and concise. But just so you know, that's my style. Very tangent, tangential, man. So I'll be hopping around a bit. I'm going to be putting pins and ideas and coming back to them. Um, and without further ado, I'm going to start telling you about myself. Um, kind of help you guys understand me and my way of thinking and why I'm here and how I've gotten here um, back up to my childhood six seven eight years old I was a compulsive liar um, all kids make mistakes all kids are a little rough around the edges but for me I just lied non-stop left and right about everything the reason being I really wanted friends I really wanted to connect. I really wanted friends. And the one connection I made was kids with cool stuff or cool stories or funny jokes were really well liked. So 
I took it upon myself to fabricate these stories of grandeur and make people believe that my life was far more fantastical than it really was. And unfortunately, when you lie compulsively and you lie a lot, people catch on to that. And my loved ones and my friends are like, ah, oh, Sterling, come on, that's not true. Like, you know it's not true. And I would just keep going, like, no, no, really, it's for real. No, really, this thing happened. So that detail is important because it laid the groundwork for me feeling very lonely as a kid. I compulsively lied with my family, with my friends. It left me feeling very isolated. My own fault, right? But I felt super alone. And many years later, a couple years ago, I got post-diagnosed with clinical depression um, when I was a kid. And so that was a very key component in what led into me being who I am now. I was very alone. I was dealing with depression. I felt like I didn't have any value because I'm an extrovert. And so I feel charged up and feel good when I'm talking with other people. Furthermore, I had a consequence system in place when I was a kid that my parents tried very hard to find really good ways of, of disciplining us that wasn't violent or hurtful or, or negative on us long term. So my parents are fantastic. The results of what happened to me and how I felt was a direct result of my own victimhood mentality and nothing to do with acts that they committed against me. Um, I was very blessed as a kid, wasn't abused, was treated very well. Um, my dad worked really hard to be a better father than his father, and I, I think that's how we always do it. <laughs> we always hope to be better than our parents, right? And with any luck, each generation has uh, slightly better parents than the last. But um, I, the consequence was that I had to write lines about what I did wrong. Like, I will not hit my sister. Duh. Or I will speak respectfully to my parents when I'm asked to do something. Um, however, as a kid, I was a victim. And when I mean victim, I mean nothing was my fault. Everything was done to me. Um, horrible acts were committed against me. And if that's the case, it meant I didn't have to do anything to change. I didn't have to improve. I didn't have to grow. Everything else had to change around me. That is a victimhood mentality. So even though the words that I was writing for this consequence were not bad in of themselves, I saw myself as a victim and really just criminalized what was me, me having to write these pages. And I just felt like I was writing, I suck, I suck, I suck. I'm a horrible kid. I'm a horrible kid. I'm a horrible kid. I have no value. I have no value. I have no value. And that hurt. It hurt a lot. Granted, it was my own fault. It was the way that I saw everything. It's not really what was happening. So as a kid, I felt isolated. I was doing these pages, and I was so stubborn, <laughs> so headstrong, and so prideful as a kid. I would retaliate each time I got a consequence. So each time I had to write some pages of these lines, I would lash out knowing I would get more pages. And understandably, I got more pages. It got to a crazy point um, 
where I, I had like 4,800 pages and I couldn't go anywhere, couldn't do anything until they were done. And so it felt like, as a kid, it felt like my life was over. And I just kept writing these lines that drove in how, how worthless I felt. And when you're a compulsive liar, nobody's going to want to be friends with you. Nobody knows what reality is. So understandably, I had no friends. I didn't feel close to my family. Didn't feel, didn't, I didn't feel I had any friends. Um, and so from a very early age, I did not feel happy. I felt super depressed. Um, now my problems are Mickey Mouse problems compared to other people. That's a phrase that I'm borrowing from one of my mentors. Um, Mickey Mouse problems is something you'd see in a cartoon. Like it's compared to what other people go through. It's really nothing, but our own perceptions can make our very small problems seem like they're mountains. So, um, by no means am I saying that what I've gone through is more intense than other people. Um, this is just my story. This is just what I've been through. And furthermore, as a kid, I, so I have ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. A lot of people have it. A lot of people are overdiagnosed with it. A lot of people have it and aren't diagnosed. It's very controversial, controversial, um, mental condition. Um, in many ways it's a blessing and in many ways it's a curse. Um, so as a kid, I really struggled to focus. I felt stupid in school. I thought that I wasn't very intelligent. Um, and when you have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD, your brain doesn't make enough dopamine as the, it doesn't make as much as the average brain. So you're always searching for it. You're always looking for more, more. Uh, dopamine is kind of like the one of the happiness chemicals that gets dumped in our brains. Um, it's uh, also related to connection chemicals like oxytocin. Um, and so it has uh, dopamine has a lot to do with bonding and happiness. And when we don't have enough dopamine going through our systems, it gets really hard for us to think, behave, and act in a, in a balanced manner. Um, so I was always looking for dopamine. I was already very very uh troubled as a kid um felt like i didn't have any value and then um was in the public school system and, and had some bad influences around me that just talked about um intimacy when i was like seven seven years old intimacy in a very perverted and crass way i had no clue what they were talking about but um what they said made me very curious and i didn't feel like i could talk to my family because I, you know, my own fault didn't feel close to them. Saw myself as a victim. They had to change, not me, which is was the very incorrect way of thinking. But um, I didn't feel happy, and I was searching for that dopamine unknowingly. I was looking for something I already was in deficit of, and then given my circumstances, I just didn't put myself in a place where I, I could feel happy um, because of my victimhood mentality. This perversion of intimacy that caused this curiosity generated experimentation. And a lot of people go through this and a lot of people say, oh, that's natural. Oh, that's healthy. Uh, I'm not sure I agree on the healthy part. Natural, perhaps? Um, healthy? Not necessarily. It is good to understand ourselves and it's good to 
know who we are and how we work and to love and appreciate our bodies. Um, but it's also important that it be done in a healthy and safe environment with some loving and um, intuitive guidance as well. And that's a role that parents shy away from a lot because intimacy is very, ah, I don't like talking about that to my kids. You know, the talk is always, there's a negative stigma behind it. Um, fact of the matter is, curiosity is what causes most problems and curiosity killed the cat right um so there's this curiosity i began experimenting with myself and the only connection i made was wow this feels good and in my world where i didn't feel like anything was good and i wasn't happy and i didn't have any friends or any real human connections i went oh well this must be happiness this is the only thing that makes me happy so in a very perverted way, it became my best friend, if you will. I turned to it all the time if I was upset, if I was angry, if I was tired, if I was lonely. So like two, three dozen times a day, I would sneak away and go engage. And so um, this created a very, very unhealthy relationship with sexuality from a very, very young age. And far before I started experiencing the chemicals induced by puberty. Um, and so then once I hit puberty and once kids at school were starting to talk even more about intimacy and there's crass and, and crude jokes made and finally had the talk with my dad, um, I started to connect all the dots. And what started purely as a sensation thing for me, I began to tie thoughts and images too as I began to find girls attractive and pretty, I was like, oh, this is a really pretty girl. I would then mix that with, you know, those thoughts with the experimentation. And then an unhealthy habit formed. And it set me up to be, I set myself up to latch on to pornography later on. Um, and so when I was 11 or 12, I began being exposed to pornography and there make no mistake 99 out of 100 men I want to say even more than that a hundred percent of men have experienced a, a an attraction to pornography um, because for men it represents something that we crave we, we crave um, connection and love and the way that men receive that is through intimacy. And so something that is beautiful and wonderful and drives human connection, with, especially with one's spouse and partner, um, becomes perverted very quickly and very easily, especially in society. And so pornography is incredibly destructive to the mind. Um, physiologically, it shuts down the love centers of your brain. The part of your brain that expresses and feels love shuts down entirely for days sometimes weeks after a single exposure to pornography um reason being is is we begin seeing people as objects they are things they are things to satisfy a desire and it's what makes it so nasty and disgusting now if you're listening to this and you're a guy or a girl and you deal with that you're not a bad person this is a very understandable thing to latch onto. It does dump a lot of dopamine and it does dump some oxytocin into your system and it creates chemical bonds 
attached to whatever the item of your fixation is, whether that's a person, whether it's an image. Um, so it's incredibly difficult to A, recognize, okay, this is not healthy, and then B, recognize, and then B, have the, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? To have the tenacity, um, per se, to, to tear ourselves away from it. Um, when we're seeing people as objects, that is not wholesome. That is not constructive. And further, pornography, it takes over the survival center of our brain the same way that drugs do. Um, when somebody's addicted to drugs or substances, what happens is the survival center of the brain that says, I need food, good food, I need lots of water, and I need sleep, and I need a warm place to live that's sheltered. That place gets that place of the brain gets corrupted and begins focusing on, I need this substance. I need it. I need it more than anything else. So, and that is physiologically and scientifically backed and proven. There have been studies done on the effects pornography has on the brain. There have been MRI scans done on what happens when somebody is viewing pornography or even conjuring images up in their own minds of what happens in the activity centers of their brain that light up are identical to the centers of the brain that light up when you're on heroin, which is one of the worst drugs that you can take into your system. And, and that is, that's scary. That is scary. It pulls you out of your logical brain and puts you into your carnal animalistic brain. Um, the scientific terms for uh, the states of mind I'm unfamiliar with. Um, I was familiar with it at one point and can't remember it at the moment, but this was really hard for me to escape and I didn't understand the harm that I was doing at first. Most people don't. And so I was heavily involved in pornography and this self-experimentation. And so I was shutting off the love centers of my brain. I didn't feel loved. I couldn't give love to others. I was isolating myself even further and even once they recognize that, oh, that this is wrong. This is, this is seeing somebody as an object, and that's just not right. Um, even once I hit that point, it was such a deeply ingrained habit. It was darn near impossible for me to tear myself away cold turkey. Um, I began working with religious leaders, and I went to 12-step programs, um, both religious and non-religious affiliations of 12-step programs alike. Um, to try to understand how to break away from this because I could feel it holding me back. It was the only thing I thought about nonstop. I, I, and uh, there's something called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And on the base level is food, good food, good water, good sleep, good air, just like your base essential needs. And on the higher tiers are higher levels of human fulfillment, um, like a greater sense of duty and purpose, uh, a life legacy that you're voraciously working towards. And when you don't have that base level of Maslow's hierarchy fulfilled, is remember I mentioned the survival center of your brain that fulfills food, water, sleep, um, is corrupted and is focused on a substance, then, well, you're not fulfilling that base need. You can't get to the higher levels of the hierarchy and progress further if that is not first addressed. So regardless of whether or not you think it's morally correct or incorrect, um, you will always be holding yourself back 
by allowing yourself to engage with anything pornographic. Um, it just corrupts. It's disgusting. It, and, and I was there for 12 years. I totally get it. You're not a bad person for dealing with it. Just want to clarify that. You're not of the devil. You're not going to hell. Um, so just understand that that is not natural. It is not healthy. Um, and I didn't recognize that until way too far down the road, until it was already a deeply ingrained habit. And once I did recognize that, it was really hard to escape. So I already mentioned that I isolated myself even further, and um, I got to the point where I felt so alone, and I felt so unworthy of, of living, of being alive. I just didn't have any friends. I didn't have any connections. And I ostracized myself from my family. I, so I, I didn't want to be here anymore. And a lot of people have experienced that. Um, a lot of people experienced it far more significantly than I have. Um, but I, I made several plans to go through with it and to end everything. Um, thankfully, um, I can't pinpoint it to an exact moment. I just, at some point, I stopped thinking like a victim. I, I stopped thinking, these horrible things have happened to me. These kids exposed me to this. These, uh, you know, I, my family isn't there for me the way I want them to be. My, uh, my, I don't have any friends. These, these people are just so mean to me. The whole world is judging me and hates me. Um, they need to just accept me for who I am. They need to change. That is a victimhood mentality. You are not going to get anywhere thinking that way. And I wasn't getting anywhere thinking that way either. But somewhere, like later, later teens, I started recognizing, man, my life seems to feel like the result of whatever I'm looking for. Um, which is totally true. We see what we look for. And I was looking to be a victim, so I was. End of story. And once I started accepting the fact that, no, I, I'm in control. I am the captain of my ship. And I'm at the helm. That's when I started recognizing that, oh my gosh, there's a whole nother way of living. Like, I, I don't have to let life happen to me. Life can happen for me. And the difference between that is a change in mindset. And we hear that all the time in self-help books and, and motivational speakers. Um, that, oh, life happens for you, not to you, which is totally true. But we wave that off going, oh, yeah, whatever. It's mighty difference between those two words, for and to. But for real, once I started letting life happen for me instead of to me, that was when everything changed. In high school, I, I began having meaningful relationships with couple friends I had like one or two I was no longer a compulsive liar and I leaned very heavily on honesty I still struggled with um, integrity a little bit from time to time but said you know what I really want to be honest I I'm gonna be as honest as I can be and if people honestly don't like me then that's okay and I will make peace with that and that helped a ton. When we come to a place where we can just accept the fact that, you know what, this is honestly who I am. If people don't accept that, that's okay. And I'm honestly working on myself 
because there's a difference between saying, this is honestly where I'm at now. This won't be where I am tomorrow, but it's where I'm at now because there's a community of people that have a tendency to think, oh, just love yourself the way you are, no matter where you're at in life. You don't need to worry about changing anything. Just stay the way you are and everybody should just love you that way. And it's their problem if they don't. There are aspects of that way of thinking that are great. Yes, love yourself where you are at. Give yourself some grace and forgiveness for mistakes you're making along the way. This life is about growth. None of us are born perfect. The problem is when we think that I have to do nothing. I don't have to change. You need to see me differently. You need to be nicer to me. You need to just accept all of my flaws. That is an erroneous way of thinking that unfortunately far too many Americans and just people across the world fall victim to. So let's, let's not do that. Let's instead say, you know what? There's something I can do. There's something I can change. And if we say, look, I'm the problem, the great news is if you're the problem, you can create the solution. If you're not the problem, you're always powerless. You're always waiting for somebody else to do something. So if you say, you know what? I'm the problem. I can create the fix. It's so liberating. So that's what happened to me. Um, teenage years, I realized I am the problem. So I can fix it. And I went to work. I, I already mentioned I went to a, a lot of different 12-step programs. And in high school, I started doing a lot better. I still had some friends. And I even started like kind of unofficially mentoring a lot of my friends. I was kind of Mr. Answers in high school. Um, if somebody had relationship advice <laughs> that they wanted from me, um, that started to become a field where I was really good in. I started to do really well. I, In my dating life, I was uh, considered a gentleman, and that was something I took a lot of pride in because in order to be a gentleman, that's, that's a selfless type of mentality where you're putting other people first. And for me, it was a massive jump from my struggles with pornography because pornography puts yourself first. You're, you're saying, me, my desires, my thoughts, my feelings, my my sensations and stimulation. That's so it's very selfish. And I was selfish for years that way. And so everything changed when I started saying, okay, how can I help them feel good about themselves? And not in a sexual sense, in a just an emotional capacity. How can I help that person feel good about themselves? The multiple times that I wanted to end my life Afterwards, I recognized that I wasn't in a good place and I never wanted anybody else to feel that way. So high school, I became Mr. Answers. I was driven to like try to help other people. Uh, still kind of pretty awkward and probably people th thought I was pretty weird. Um, but I started feeling less lonely and it was because my mindset changed. So then I hit senior year of high school and my mom met um, this really really neat guy. His name's Greg Denning um, at a homeschool conference and he was doing some sort of speaking engagement. Um, and so I, she met this guy at a homeschool conference because me and all my siblings were homeschooled for middle school. Um, a thought that I thought I spurred. Uh, I thought I was the one who pushed for that. Um, I had recent conversations with my mom in the last year or two. She said she's always wanted to do that. So regardless, we were homeschooled for, I was homeschooled for middle school and then chose to go back to high school. All the rest of my siblings are still doing homeschool. Um, so she met Greg Denning at this homeschool conference 
And she knew that I was looking for someone. She knew that I was, I wanted a mentor. She knew that I wanted more out of my life and didn't know how to get there. And so she comes home and she's like, Sterling, I think this is the guy for you. Like, I, I know you've been looking for someone. I think this guy is like speaking your language. And I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Cause I was still in a mentality of, you know, my parents don't know anything. <laughs> uh, I know better than my parents. They're crazy. And all their ideas uh, aren't going to work for me. So of course I waved it off. And my mother, being the incredibly intelligent saint of a woman that she is, she would just start listening to his podcast around me. Or she would hang out with me and his podcast would be going in the background. She was using Inception. You know that Christopher Nolan film, uh, Inception? Oh, so good. Um, it's talking about planting an idea in somebody else's head and making them think it's their own idea. So she was doing a little bit of that with me. Um this guy is really your mentor. You really like him. But she wasn't saying that. It was just, I, I was like, oh, I kind of I like what this guy is saying. And I saw how into his podcast she was and how much like what he talked about was changing her life. And I was like, huh, okay, well, we're, I'm not really a podcast guy, uh, ironically, but let me take a look. Let me, let me see if this works out for me. And I started listening. And it was this whole other way of thinking, taking control of one's life. Just, it felt so liberating. And, and to this day, I accredit a lot of um, my ideologies and my philosophies to him um, because he introduced me to that world. There's kind of these two separate worlds that don't ever really co-mingle at all. And they're kind of oblivious to each other in a sense that they don't realize that the other exists is the world of victims which is probably 95 percent of all americans um and a lot of people throughout the world who just say oh, all these horrible things are happening to me my boss won't give me a raise my spouse is just not changing these things and we fight all the time my kids aren't listening to me or my friends just oh they just don't oh and we just post the problem on someone else and so there's that world and then there's the world of my life is what I make of it. This bad thing happened to me, but yeah, guess what I learned from it? Life happens for me. I will find a way or make a way. And these two worlds don't intermingle because when they bump into each other, they think, oh my gosh, that person's crazy. The people who are victims go, ugh, this person is hyped up on some voodoo happy juice and just thinks that... Uh, is just wearing some rose-colored glasses. And we have such a negative, pessimistic view of people who dream. People who idealize going after what they want and not stopping till they get it. And then the people who are voraciously after just a higher way of life go, I hate these whiners and these complainers and and I'm not going to spend my time with them. They just drain me. So these two worlds live apart from each other, existing in the exact same place, you know, tickling each other in terms of influence from time to time, but generally just explaining it away as these people are crazy. And that's typically what we do to everyone around us. We just say, they don't think the way I think. They're nuts. And that is a fixed mindset, my friends. And that is not how we grow. Growth comes from recognizing that there is a need for change and then a willingness to go after it. And that's the 
the very large motivator behind me doing this podcast is to find people who recognize, man, I don't know what I don't know. I don't like where I'm at, but I really want to get somewhere better. Like, there's got to be more to life than the humdrum rat race. I'm sick of it, but I don't know where to go. So consider me a compass and this podcast to be a compass to give you a little bit of direction in where to go, to get you in the general vicinity of where you want to be. I'm working on um, honing in my skills so I can be more of a map complete with topographical lines of elevation and fine detail of where you're at and where I'm at so that I can help you get exactly where you want to be. I have some work to get there and I have some more training that I'm going through and I have um, courses that I'm taking and master classes that I'm a part of. Um, but for now, at least I can help you get in the general vicinity if you're willing to let me help you out. I don't know everything and there's a lot that I don't know and I don't know what I don't know. But if you're willing to trust me and recognize that if I can, if I can feel this way, if I can go from feeling hopeless and helpless and wanting to end my life and saying the whole world hates me and is against me to realizing, oh my gosh, this, everything that happens is for me. These challenges make me stronger. These, these trials taught me this lesson. This lesson helped me help somebody else. Being able to draw, uh, connect the dots and recognize that life truly does happen for us. So if I can do that, anybody can. Because I'm not a special snowflake. I'm not more intelligent than you. I'm not more blessed than you. And I am incredibly blessed and I'm very grateful for the world that I've been born into and, and for my circumstances. And I've had a wonderful mother and father that not everybody even has that dynamic. And so... In many ways, I, I, I amend my statement. I am incredibly blessed. And I'm very grateful for what I've been given. And I've seen people do far more with far less. Um, if I can by myself recognize that I need to change, then so can you. And you can achieve so much more. So, younger years were really hard for me. Uh, teenage years were kind of dicey, back and forth. Um, and then senior year of high school is when I was introduced to my mentor, my first mentor, Greg Denning. Um, and what I, when I say mentor, I mean, I just have consumed in every bit of material that he's punched out for free because, <laughs> um, uh, I've been not so wise with my money over the years and I've made a lot of it. I'm pretty good at creating side hustles and coming up with little ways to just make money appear. <laughs> but I always spend it as soon as I get it. At least in the past I have. I've been doing way better in recent years. Um, last two years really uh, when I got married and had a kid. <laughs> when I had to pay for diapers and make sure that my wife could eat. It kind of shook something into me. But um circling back to the fact that I met Greg and he was the first mentor that I adopted and I consumed all of his free material, his YouTube videos, his podcasts. Um, he has two right now that I'm aware of. He has a bunch of master classes that um, for a little while I was in some of the master classes that he would do. Um, and then I, probably a year down the road after I'd been introduced to him, um, I took 
took like a gap year, gap year and a half, really. And I just started consuming books, the books he was recommending. And, and I started, and reading was hard for me. Again, ADHD, focus is not my strong suit or hasn't been. It's been something I've had to train myself very hard to do and didn't realize I was ADHD until I was like 18 and graduated high school. My parents um, lovingly um, encouraged me to go get a psyche valve and they paid for it and were like, here, you know, we hope this will help you figure, figure yourself out. We understand you're trying to understand yourself. Um, so I got diagnosed. I didn't hop on meds. I didn't like that idea. Uh, I was really opposed to it because I believe that um, through lifestyle decisions and dieting and um, training, we can use any kind of weakness and turn it into a strength. I believe that very much. And I know it's entirely possible for anyone who gives it their best effort. So, uh, again, I apologize for all the tangents that are here and there. Hopefully this creates space for you to have your own thoughts and own ideas as I kind of hop from subject to subject. And hopefully you can connect some dots that you don't wouldn't normally connect, just having a very clear, concise, to-the-point conversation. Um, so we're going to circle back. <laughs> we're going to pause and circle back to just the fact that my paradigms, the way that I perceived the world changed as I grew a little older and was exposed to some mentors who helped me realize this. And I realized I had the power to control and change my own life. So to illustrate that, I'm going to share some experiences that I've been through in the last two years and the wild ride I've experienced. I feel like I've aged 10 years, a decade in the last two years. So much has happened. Um, so let's see, 18, 19 years old, I had a best friend of mine. He and I were joined at the hip. We, we weren't in the same state. He lived in Minnesota. I lived in Virginia. And we FaceTimed, had to be like three to six hours every day. We were always talking on the phone and we were the dynamic duo. Um, we met through an affiliate program that just helped us uh, master ourselves better. And um, we just became really great friends. And so he came out for summer sales one summer. And then afterwards, uh, the following summer, he and I were like, hey, like we should, we should get together again. Um, he was going through a lot of, a lot of struggles. He went and moved out to Utah for a bit. He had some really, really hard things happen to him. And um, he came back to Minnesota after a while and just his family was not um, the kindest to him. And they, you know, like flipped around later. I don't understand exactly everything that, that went on there, but I know that he was going to be alone for Christmas. Um, he to my understanding, what he expressed to me was that he was not allowed home because of the things that he was experiencing and going through and some of the choices he'd made. Um, so I got my family together. I was like, hey, um, my friend is going to be alone for Christmas. Can we please send him like a Christmas package? And I immediately went to work like my siblings kind of knew him fairly well just because I was always on the phone with him. Um, they would be in the room while I was on the phone. So they felt like they knew him uh, fairly well. And they'd met him when we did uh, summer sales together in Virginia uh, for some pest control company. <laughs> um, so we got this Christmas package together and, and sent it out to him. And, um, and then the months afterwards, um, he and I were like, hey, let's get together 
and help inspire each other to, to get towards our goals. He was going through a lot and he needed some help. And so I was like, yes, let's do this. Let's strengthen each other. And so a month after we talked about that, I packed two bags, hopped on a plane and left everything I'd ever known. I had never really traveled. Um, I hadn't really gone anywhere. Uh, my family always did the exact same vacation <laughs> as a kid. We always went to the same beach. It was a lot of fun, but just didn't do a ton to kind of put me outside of my own little bubble, my own little sphere. And um, so it was terrifying leaving home, leaving my parents. I'm the oldest of seven. My six younger siblings, uh, I was felt really sad to leave them. Um, but I left. I went out to Minnesota. He and I were working together to try to uh, reach our goals. We both wanted to serve a religious mission. Um, uh, we both just loved the, the religion we were a part of and it made us feel really happy and we wanted to share that happiness with other people. Um, despite all the struggles that he went through and, and some of the things that I'm about to express, he successfully managed to get out and, and kind of clean himself up and, and, and work on himself and heal enough that he managed to go out and I, he's doing wonderful things for, for, some, for some people and he's doing really well. But before, the, before all that happened, before he managed to get out, um, he and I were together in Minnesota. We had an apartment that we got together in downtown Minneapolis, <laughs> one of the uh, most dangerous places right now. Um, every night, I remember going to bed and just I hear sirens, but not just like it's a city. Of course, you're going to hear sirens. But we also lived right next to a hospital. And every night, I would see somebody get life flown to this hospital after hearing gunshots like 15, 30 minutes prior. And so it was terrifying. I went from living in a very uh, rich neighborhood where there was not really any visible crime. Um, There's a lot of other issues where I came from, but there was nothing like people walking down the street with guns openly strapped to their hip or carrying them out in the open. Now, man, it, granted, that's more nighttime that that, that was happening, but in the middle of downtown next to a hospital seeing people life flown and hearing sirens and gunshots every night it was terrifying it was it was so far out of my sphere of of what i had experienced it just blew my mind and was scary uh, when i first moved there i didn't uh think everything through and my bank that i um had all my money in was only found on the eastern seaboard <laughs> and so i went from the eastern seaboard to part of the midwest and didn't have any of my banks that i could go access and so i panicked i didn't have access to any of my money i had to like go through this complicated process to get my money from this bank and i couldn't go to them in person and so there's a whole bunch of issues there and i went through some identity fraud somebody was trying to steal my identity at the exact same time as me not being able to access all my money. And so trying to open another bank account was incredibly difficult. Um, I managed to do it and my friend helped me out and made it a little easier. Um, but once I had a new bank, I went to the ATM one afternoon and again, came from a place where I didn't really think about crime, just kind of was in my own little bubble, thought the world was just all perfectly at peace. <laughs> and I get my money from the ATM and put it in my pocket and I start heading back home like two, three blocks and this guy is following me and followed me for about a block. And it's like five, six o'clock PM. It's not dark, but it's definitely dusk starting to lose light. Um, and if you don't know already, 
there's an incident uh, surrounding George Floyd that happened in downtown Minneapolis, um, and it caused the police force to be significantly reduced. They, like, totally stripped the funding from their police force. Um, and so it's kind of lawless <laughs> right now in, in Minneapolis. Um, used to be a really, really nice, really clean city. Um, and it still kind of is. It's just falling apart. Um, and they're doing a lot to try to regain control of things. And they're doing great. And you find amazing, wonderful people in that city. But um, police force pretty much wiped out. So this guy's following me about a block. Um, and I finally turn around. I'm a very open person. I turn around. I'm like, what do you want? Why are you following me? And... He pulls a gun on me, and quite frankly, I, I can't remember anything really after that. I remember him holding a gun to me. I and I know he was probably after the cash that I just pocketed from the ATM, but in my head, I was just like, oh my gosh, I just froze. I just totally shut down. And um, out of nowhere, some other guy came up with a gun and was pointing that gun at the guy who was pointing a gun at me. Um... I don't know if it was some sort of territorial beef or, or what was going on there, but I just, in a split moment, I kind of came back and just turned around and sprinted and just was sprinting in a zigzag pattern. I didn't hear any gunshots, but heard a lot of screaming. Um, get back to my apartment and just shut my door and locked it and just hid there for like two days. It's like, oh my gosh, I almost died and just was thoroughly shaken. So... That happened, but my mentality was one of, okay, this happens for a reason. In the future, I need to be prepared. I need to start doing some training to be able to handle myself. I need to, be, I need to put myself in really intense situations um, on purpose so that I can better handle and act and respond when disaster strikes. I was made aware of the fact that I was not prepared. And that was very helpful. And I was able to see that because I was no longer in this victimhood mentality. And so a month later, um, my friend and I got into a huge, huge fight. Um, he'd gone through a lot of crazy stuff and was not in a great headspace. Uh, he had a lot of stuff messing with his head. Um, and so he similarly was in a victimhood kind of state of mind and thought that I was trying to hurt him. Uh, through some very silly, petty things that, that had happened. and um, So he came up to me during a party that we were throwing kind of towards the end. Um, this is actually at the same time that I met my wife, Erin, uh, uh, that I'm now married to. Um, and he threatened my life. And, oh man, that was scary. Just like a week or two after I'd been held at gunpoint, for the first time in my life, he, and he's a strong dude. He's a big, strong guy. And he's very, um, you could say reliable in that, like, if he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. So when he threatened me, I took that so dead serious. And, um, a security guard came up because there was a lot of screaming and he was being really physical. Um, and there's just a, a bunch of people there sitting there from the party. We're just like, what the heck is going on? Um, and so the security guard comes up. He's like, hey, is everything okay? Do I need to get involved? He kind of had his hand on his hip. I didn't see what he had. Maybe it's just a taser, stun gun, pistol, who knows what. Um, he probably was just banking on it being a, <laughs> a desk job. <laughs> didn't think he'd have to actually ever do anything in that bougie apartment we were living in. Um, but 
Uh, my friend kind of says his piece, threatens me, and then just walks off. And the security guard and all my friends are like, dude, you, you can't stay with him tonight. You can't stay here. Like, he looked like he was going to kill you. And I was like, yeah, you're, you're right. I, I mean, he's, he's a great guy. He's not normally like this. But something's going on. Something's messing with him. And so I had two guys come up with me to my apartment. And I packed a bag, hopped in my truck. And a couple of the folks that were there and witnessed the whole thing offered to let me stay at their place um, for the... A total of about a week. I stayed the first night at somebody's house, a couple nights um, at somebody else's house. Um, one of the folks that I stayed with was my wife and her brother. So Aaron and Grant. Um, Grant's my brother-in-law. Aaron's my wife. Um, they came to the party. I didn't really know them very well. I heard of um, Grant and that he was a cool guy. And Aaron doesn't normally uh, show up to parties. Uh, it was it was a, <laughs> a church party. A, a church function got canceled and my buddy and I were like, oh, we got to gotta replace everybody's Saturday plans that just got canceled. So we threw a party at her place. So she came along. We met. She saw the whole thing go down. My friendship with this guy just blow up kind of all in, in, in one moment. And she and her brother were like, hey, you can come stay with us. Like our parents are cool with it. Um, we've got a detached garage that you can go stay in. There's living quarters up top. Um and so I, st I stayed with them for a few days. I got to get to know Aaron a little bit. Um, I was still going to work, but after work, she and I would talk. And I was like, wow, this girl is really cool. Um, she loved to ride ATVs, and their family lives on a farm. They have horses and cows and chickens and pigs. And um, a lot of land where just uh, you can go ride an ATV out on some dirt trails. And so it was a whole way of life that I'd never experienced. It was so serene and completely compared to the crazy chaos of the city, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a farm boy. <laughs> I was like, I'm a country dude. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and loved visiting, but just never really thought of myself in, in that regard. Um, that's where I came from, and those are where my roots are down in the south. But just was like, no, I live in Virginia, and I'm, you know, I just don't really know who I am. So the serene life on the farm was doing so much to help me feel whole after everything that had happened, leaving my family, having so much going on in my life. My friend threatened me and leave me the, the best relationship that I'd ever had in my life up until that point was my friend. And it was like a breakup. And so I spent more and more time at the farm. After a week time frame, I did end up going back to my apartment, but uh, my friend and I were not on speaking terms. Uh, it was pretty much understood that you leave me alone I leave you alone we're just living in the same space right now and there's not going to be any further law any further problems so long as we ignore each other so that's kind of what happened I made an attempt or two to try to talk it out and he just wouldn't have any anything of it he would ignore me and just so I, I finally gave up I was like all right whatever and I just spent more and more time at the farm I just didn't like the way I felt around my friend there's just always this dark nasty feeling every time I walked into our apartment didn't feel like home but the farm very quickly began to feel more and more like home. And so I was spending a lot of time with my wife and she and Grant um, went off to Michigan to go see some family for a while. And um, right before she left, we all watched a movie together with some, some other folks, some other friends they invited that I didn't know. At this uh, little movie get together, there was this girl that I met um, that I kind of had a little crush on. It's like, ah, oh, she's kind of cute. Um, seems kind of interesting and um 
so I met her and um, the reason why that's relevant is Grant, my brother-in-law, is the most gentlemanly, bro-code-abiding guy <laughs> you'll meet. So he liked that girl as well, but he didn't want to step on my toes. So he asked Aaron, he's like, hey, do you know if Sterling's into this girl? Because I don't want to step on his toes. If he's going after her, I'm going to back off. And she goes, oh, yeah, Sterling and I are homies. She hadn't even thought of me in a romantic just way of thinking at all. And so she's like, yeah, we're homies. I'll totally hit him up. And she's like, hey, do you like this girl? And I'm panicking on the other side. I'm going, oh, my gosh. Like, she knows that I, I'm really into her and that I'm like, I always considered myself very smooth with girls. I was always a gentleman. And with Aaron, I just was like, oh, I just couldn't talk. <laughs> and so she's like, hey, do you like this girl? I think she's on to me. I'm like, oh, I thought I was, but I think I'm into somebody else. You know, trying to let on that, hey, I kind of like you. She wasn't picking up on it. <laughs> she was a little clueless in that regard. And I was dropping a lot of hints even before she left on her trip. But she and her brother are at the airport. They're asking me over text, do you like this girl? And I say, thought so, not really. I'm into someone else. And then just she's talking to me as a homie. She's like, oh, oh, nice. And like, have you asked her out yet? She's just wondering. She's just trying to be a homie. And I'm like, oh, she's trying to get me to ask her out. <laughs> so... I'm like, no, uh, I haven't asked her out yet. And she's like, oh, well, you should. And I'm like, oh, all right, okay. Well, I'm going to be a man of action. Life happens for me. And my next text is, hey, when you get back from your trip, do you want to go out with me? And she'd been responding really quickly and then just ghosted me for 15, 20 minutes. I was sitting there in agony. She's like, oh, no, I messed it up. She thinks I'm weird and awkward. Darn it. Like, I just blew it. This like the most dynamic woman I've ever met and just boom, just blew up in my face. Um, she was sitting there with her brother just in shock. Um, she made up some lame excuse about how she was getting on the plane and she and I laughed later that she totally was sitting there not knowing how to respond. And eventually she's like, yeah, yeah, I'll go out with you when I get back. And, and then she started thinking about me in a romantic way in terms of she was entertaining the idea. Um, and so we got to know each other really well. She gets back from her her trip. We start dating for a couple of weeks. Um, and now for me, my entire life, uh, my I've lived in a way where I've saved intimacy for whoever my life partner is going to be. Because for me, that is just a beautiful, wonderful way to connect with your partner. And for me, it was a way that I could tell my wife, I love you and prefer you over any other woman. This isn't something that I've just done left and right. This is something I've saved for you. Now, some people don't do that. That's totally your prerogative to live that way. For me, that was something I prioritized. And so a couple weeks in, I was like, oh my gosh, I want to marry this girl. And mentally, once I decided that, I kind of just let go of, of a lot of the um, restrictions that I'd set on myself. And she and I started being really intimate. And now me personally, I still feel like we did things out of order. I think it happened for a reason and I'm so blessed to have her in my life. But essentially the reason why I say that is she got pregnant. Oh yeah, she got pregnant. And thing was though, we thought she couldn't. Um, she has a medical condition that um, would make it very hard for her to have kids. And then beyond that... Um, she was taking um, birth control because that balances your hormones as well. Birth control does. And she has another medical condition that just, it's kind of like an eternal period, which 
oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. I feel so bad for my wife, but she's she's a tough woman, so she can handle it. But she was on birth control for her emotions and hormones to kind of regulate it. Um, and she has a condition where we thought she couldn't have kids. So when she got pregnant, we were like, whoa, what on earth? Like, like what happened? Like, how is this possible? And she and I agreed there's nothing other than God that got involved and made that happen because that was, you know, a one in a million chance that that could happen. Especially like it's this is this is the first woman I've ever chosen to be with. Like and, and that happening, that's not a coincidence, nor is that a punishment. That's that's something higher and that I wholeheartedly believe in. So the day that we found out, oh, I call this my my three C's weekend. Um <laughs> the three C's are crash child crackhead <laughs> and let me explain this a little bit so I got into a car crash with her car I was driving her car because she was trying to help me save money on gas I was getting to and from work and she she got a new car from her dad and so she's like hey you can drive my car and so thoughtful and then I go and totaled her car on the highway trying to get into the city um, there was like a three, four car pile up on the highway and I was like the second or third car back. I just didn't slam on my brakes hard or fast enough. Well, I slammed on my brakes and then the brakes locked up as a 2005, uh, Subaru legacy. Oh, beautiful little car, beautiful car. And I wrecked it. It felt terrible. So she was ticked off at me. And so she's dealing with pregnancy hormones and she's beyond pissed. And I was, I was really disappointed. I was like, okay, are you not happy I'm safe? Like, that was a major accident I was in. Like, aren't you happy that I'm okay? And she just wouldn't talk to me. And she, granted, I totally goofed up. I felt so bad. I felt, I still feel terrible. I'm like, don't worry, babe. I'm going to buy you the nicest car someday to make up for that. But at the time, I wrecked her car. And so, understandably, she was upset. We were supposed to hang out that evening, but she came and picked me up. Uh, tow company towed the car away. She picked me up in her new car. And she's like, I need some time. I need to figure out why I feel so upset right now. So she drops me off at the apartment and she goes home. Um, I'm like, oh man, I'm so sorry. Like, I really just wanted an opportunity to apologize. Um, and so next morning we get together and I'm like, oh, I've got my speech ready. I'm ready to apologize. I'm ready to let her know how sorry I am. And she's like, look, this isn't an excuse but I think this might um, explain a little. And she just hands me a pregnancy test. <laughs> she hands me a pregnancy test that says pregnant on it, the word pregnant. I'm just staring at it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be a dad. Holy cow. Like, I just, my mind was reeling. I was excited. I was terrified. Like, I was, I was part, I was very happy that of anyone in the world to have kids with, I was having it with her, but I was just like, oh my gosh, this is just not the way I planned my life, this is not what I was looking for right now, so a lot going through my head, but I, I can pride myself in the very first thing I said was, okay, I'm not going anywhere, just so you know, like we're going to figure this out together, I'm here, I love you, I love you so much, we're going to figure this out, and, um, and so that same day that morning we decided 
you know, for peace of mind. She wanted this. I, I had made my peace with it and I accepted the truth, but she's like, all right, let's go take some more pregnancy, pregnancy tests. I'm like, uh, okay. I mean, it's pretty small margin of error for it to do a false positive, but okay, we'll go, we'll go get some more tests. I want you to feel good. So, you know, I think that happens for every unplanned pregnancy. Initially there's denial. So she gets, um, we go to target um, downtown Minneapolis target. So still in a very dangerous place and we're just out in broad daylight and we're on our way to target and we pass this guy. It's got blood just dripping all down his face. Like looks like he's from a horror movie. Um, just has gashes all over his face. I'm like, Oh gosh, this guy's on something. And he kind of mumbles, Hey, where's the hospital? And I just kind of jerked my head over in the general vicinity and say that way. And then he gets up, he gets really angry. He's like, what'd you say to me? And he starts cussing and swearing at me and getting really aggressive. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I just found out I'm going to be a dad. My unborn child is developing inside my wife right now. And my soon to be wife, because I immediately plan to, to marry her and put a ring on her finger. But I'm like, oh my gosh, what is happening with this day right now, uh, this weekend? And, um... So he just is is going nuts off the rails and he just kind of walks off and screaming at me. He's like, don't you dare ever like talk to me like that again. Just again, he was on something. Uh, Yeah. And so we were like, oh, that was that kind of shook us up. We continue walking on our way to Target. Two blocks later, we just hear screaming and we turn around. He's sprinting up behind us and he's got like this metal sign this jagged piece of metal in his hands this big old didn't know what the heck it was i just saw him running at us i was like oh my gosh uh what do i do and i kind of froze again um just like when i was held at gunpoint um i'm like oh my oh my gosh i don't know what to do and he like raised it to like hit me with it and i kind of positioned myself a little bit in between aaron and the guy, not as much as I would have liked to, wish I could say I was a total hero and just like responded perfectly and saved my damsel in distress. But no, I, I like, I did not know what to do. I just put my hands up and like, not above my head, just, just up like in a placating gesture. Like, all right. Yeah. Whatever you say, man, like no problem, whatever you want. Like you, I, I, I got you and was just trying to talk him down. And to, again, what I think was divine intervention the man just in mid swing just kind of stops and just like 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 the look in his eyes changes a little bit and goes from like crazy insane animal to like confused <laughs> insane animal um and um he, he just swears and cusses at me and yells a little more and then turns around and walks off and i'm like shaking my whole body shaking but we still continue our way to target <laughs> and so oh man my three c's weekend crash child crackhead oh man just absolutely nuts so that that happened and then so we get some tests yeah no surprise they all confirm she's pregnant and so we're like okay well how do we tell our parents like both of our parents are religious and believe in saving themselves before marriage and so they're gonna like cast us out they're gonna hate us and so i was the first to tell my parents i told them three days later and initially my dad was so mad he was so angry and it came from a good place like he had really high hopes for me and he knew that i really wanted to go on a religious mission and you know if you were being intimate with women and were having a family 
you know, you couldn't go on a mission. You needed, there were just certain steps that you had to take to make sure, okay, you know, my life is simple enough that I can go and, and teach people about God and, and stuff like that. Um, so it came from a good place. He's like, do you understand like the gravity of what you've done? And, and, oh man, that was really hard. It felt like my parents didn't understand. You know, it's like, you know, this is a conscious choice I made. This wasn't some accident that I slipped into and much to my dad's credit. You know, he flipped around and was like, son, I'm, I'm so sorry. Like I initially responded, not so great. Like I'm here for you. I love you. Let me know if I can do anything for you. And every single day since then has been like, what can I do for you? How can I help you? Like, what do you need? Do you need dad advice? Do you need? So, you know, I, I mentioned that that was hard. You know, I, I would expect every dad to respond poorly in a situation like that. Hey, I know you guys didn't know I was dating anybody. I know you guys didn't know that I was even engaged in this kind of way life. But, um, yeah, I got a random girl pregnant as far as you're concerned. You don't even know her, never seen her. And she has your first unborn grandchild. And so I can understand where that was really tough for my dad. And much to his credit, he totally flipped around. It was like, I'm here for you. I got you, son. Um, but yeah, initially really hard. I was first tell my parents. Um, then she goes and tells her parents again, expecting them to be like, oh, no, like, you're no longer a member of our family. She expected him to come out with a shotgun and <laughs> keep me from ever coming to see her again. But again, just totally was like, oh, what can we do for you, Aaron? Like, how can we support you? How can we love you? And just beautiful, wonderful responses from both our parents. Um, and so we we spent even more time together and oh man, it was so hard. I was working full time, just kind of, you know, for fun at some elementary school doing leadership lessons with the kids there. And it was like, oh, okay, this is not making the money I need to be able to afford doctor's bills. So I went and got a job at the airport. Um, I was working as the ramp supervisor for some company contracted for Delta airlines flights. Uh, loved that job. So much fun. Definitely paid way better. Um, so I was doing that full time. It was an hour drive to the airport and took me 30 minutes to actually get to where I had to clock in. So it was a big, big time commitment to get to and from work. And I was working anywhere from like a low week was 40 hours. A high week was like 60 to 90 hours. So I was working a ton, still going to doctor's appointments with my wife and um, trying to balance being able to afford. Uh, and she wasn't my wife yet. Uh, this was like um, early December. Uh, that I went and got this new job uh, early December of 2021. Uh, yeah, early December 2021 that all that happened. And then we got, uh, I proposed early December um, and then we got married February 12th, um, which a lot of people would say, oh, ha ha, you had a shotgun wedding, um, which I will always contest because a shotgun wedding is one that you have when you're pressured by society to get together because you're having a baby when actually we debated for quite a while after we knew she was pregnant because she got pregnant, what is it, September? September, yeah, of 2021. And so we debated for, for months. And to be honest, I was the one who was, who was debating the most because I did not want to marry her if I didn't really love her. And so that for me was a big hang up. And I was really worried that... Um, that like we hadn't been together long enough, you know? And I was like, no, I love her. 
I don't want to be with anybody else but her. And so I came to my senses. <laughs> she knew right away. She was like, I want him to be here. I want to be with me and my new family. And so I, I just didn't want to rush into it. And so we really thought about it and said, yes, we're getting married. We talked about getting married before she got pregnant. The plan was I was going to go serve a religious mission, come back in a couple years. We date and get married and have kids. So we'd already talked about it. Um, so I proposed, got married February 12th. Um, then uh, along the way, we uh, adopted a dog. Beautiful, beautiful mini Australian shepherd. Uh, his name is Apollo, like the, the Greek god of the sun. Um, that was consolation for not being able to name one of our kids a crazy Greek philosopher's name. <laughs> My wife was like, no, 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 I'm going to name the kids. You can name the dogs. <laughs> and I was like, all right, uh, I'll, I'll give some concession there. So um, our dog's name is Apollo, beautiful blue eyes. Um, it's got red and white coat. And so um, the idea behind that was we wanted Aaron to have like a companion while I was gone at work all day, every day. I really wanted to be there for her and, and to support her. But I'm like, man, I've got to be able to afford these doctor's bills. Like, like that was my biggest concern was I wanted everything to go smoothly financially. And I was balancing spending every other moment with her after that. So, so I was working 60 to 90 hours a week, um, trying to get as much overtime we adopted a new dog a couple months before we had our little baby boy. Uh, my son's name is Rhett. Um, and, oh, we could not agree <laughs> on baby boy names. We had a baby girl name like that, like right from the get-go. And it was a big fight, like what our boy's name would be if it was a boy, because we didn't know right away. And I'm like, come on, babe, like we got to have this argument now because it's going to be a boy just despite us because we can't agree on a name and <laughs> sure enough it was a little boy um, so we eventually like a couple weeks before he was born a couple weeks like two three weeks we finally settled on a name that we both really loved so his name's Rhett Sterling Cheney um, so yeah had so many crazy things happen and friendship totally end um, go up and smoke, had my life threatened three, four times, one at gunpoint, one just kind of physically felt threatened and like I, I'd lose my life. And then another time, just total crazy guy on drugs, um, got the woman of my dreams pregnant, just totally out of order. Like I would have way rather we got married first and then had a baby totally grateful that everything happened the way it did. Um, like wouldn't go back and change anything, but just wish I had had the wisdom to be a little bit more patient. I'd already done a great job in my own eyes. And I was like, ah, just a little bit more time. Just should have waited. Just should have tied the knot first. But, um, so we got pregnant. We got married, adopted a dog, had a baby. I just had a whole family just all at once. And it felt crazy. And I was working way beyond just full time. And then when I wasn't working, I was at home trying to help her be comfortable and help get her whatever she needed. And I made it a priority that I was going to be at every single doctor's appointment because I wanted her to know I was fully on board and that I wasn't just tying this knot so that 
so that we could avoid social stigmas. Like, no way. Like, I love this woman, and she was going to be a part of my life now, and I wanted her to know that. So, that year and a half, two years, oh man, felt like I aged a decade. I feel so old, like so mentally and emotionally old. And uh, there are people who've gone through way, way more than I have. And again, compared to some minor Mickey Mouse problems, I can totally have the uh, the wisdom and humility to accept that. But for me, it was like, oh my gosh, this is so much. There's so much going on. Um, but, oh man, that's that's everything that's just kind of happened in the last year and a half. And and um, the company I was working for is kind of... Uh, end of the my story if you will is the company I was working for started going under um, they started cutting our overtime like big time then they started cutting regular time then they started cutting like people and I'm like guys there's something going on and and you're just not saying anything you're just you're not speaking up and that's this is wrong um, and so I was like, okay, I need to get off this ship because I can no longer afford rent because of how many hours they're cutting. So there was a company back in Virginia, uh, where I lived most of my life that I'd worked for Fox Pest Control, uh, not as a sales guy, but as a technician, I would service their homes and I was kind of their top guy. I was their top employee. And so when I left, they, they were the company I was working for right before I moved out to Minnesota for my friend. They just every other month was like, hey, like, how can we get you back? How can we get you to come back to our company? Um, like, name your terms. Like, we'll put it in a contract. And that's kind of how it happened. And and um, so they they took really good care of me. They they paid for my move. And so again, in a month, the whole life changed again. We moved back home to Virginia. My wife left everything she knew. Um, her, all of her family, well, a lot of her family was in Minnesota. And she'd only left her home for a little bit of time when it came to college, um, which I guess is not a little bit of time. It's pretty substantial. But um, it was just a lot of sacrifice on her part. So we're in Virginia now. I'm living in Virginia. I work as the termite manager for Fox Pest Control. Um, they are trying to train me and get me licensed so they can... Uh, offer me a promotion in the, the summertime of 2023 um, if if they have enough people you know they've kind of mentioned eh, this is tentative we'd like to offer you this promotion but it's not guaranteed you know we're not going to put it in writing but you're first in line if we can get the numbers that we need so it's kind of more performance based but to me that job is that's a means to an end it's a great means to an end, and I love that company, and I, I love these guys, and I'm going to work with them for a while. But I'm also adamant about making something for myself. So I'm looking forward to taking on some clients. I already have some people who want to meet with me and get some coaching and mentoring. That's my true passion, and I'd like to start writing a book here soon. Um, this podcast is going to be taking up a, a good bit of my free time, and essentially I'm just going to be working on some side hustles and working on on this stuff until I'm making more money here than I am during my full-time job. Once that happens, I'm quitting my full-time job and never working for somebody else ever again. <laughs> so I'm I am excited for that because I love working for myself, being my own boss. 
I do a pretty good job keeping myself accountable. So that would work for me. It doesn't work for everybody, but just so much more freedom tied to that. Just oh, can't wait to uh, just be able to enjoy that way of life. And I'm working on it and I'm getting there and I'm making great progress. So I hope today, having tuned in and listened, this has been like an hour and 20 minutes. Um, thank you so much. If you've listened this far, um, wow, thank you. The, I I imagine there are probably times where you're like, oh, okay, like, is he done yet? Is, is he almost finished? Is he getting to the end of his story? Probably looking at your phone like, I ain't got time for this today. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for being here. Your time is valuable, and I understand you only have so much of it. So the fact that you're here today, it means a lot to me. Um, in future episodes, I'm going to actually dive into the real content that I hope to provide in terms of value. So I hope you'll forgive me for this really long episode. This is kind of a uh, kind of a one-time deal. If I have content that's worth expanding on in the future and taking a long uh, podcast episode four, then I'm going to do it because this isn't just like a 15, 20 minute quick thoughts kind of a deal. Um, I really want to tear things down and, and think of things differently and and help benefit your lives and provide value to you. So my hope is that I've established some credibility with you today, that you understand a little bit who I am, that you understand what makes me tick, you understand what I've been through, you understand that I get life is hard. I have not been through everything, and I'm, I have so many more struggles and challenges yet to come, some that may really threaten to break me, and, but I'm, I'm ready for it. And I hope you can see that and I hope you can trust me and come on this journey with me and recognize, look, we've all got our issues. We've all got our struggles, but let's, let's band together. Let's, let's make some things happen. You know, let's change for, for better, you know? So thank you so much for tuning in here today. Um, you can reach me at, um, Sterling A. Cheney on Instagram. You can reach out to me, um, on Sterling Cheney on Facebook and uh, in coming episodes I'll uh, let you guys know where else you can get a hold of me if you're interested in some coaching and mentoring and and getting onto a track where you're moving the needle in your life you're getting closer towards your goals and you're getting dialed into actually setting some goals please please reach out to me uh, it's really important that we have a coach it's really important that we have somebody to help push us and keep us accountable um, so that's that's half of of the importance of having a coach and a mentor. Just someone to keep us accountable. Say, hey, did you meet your goals? Did you hit ABC? No? Okay. Well, here's the consequence that you agreed on. This is what's gotta happen, you know? So it's it's a it's a consequence of love and determined by yourself. Um, so let's meet together. Let's sit down, let's get something started. I'm so excited for this journey. Thanks for coming along for this ride. And I hope you have a fantastic week, fantastic life, and just choose to make it a beautiful day. And further, I recognize not a lot of people hear the words I love you every day, and I, I hope you will feel closer to me now to be able to hear I love you and, and feel that I, I mean it. If I don't know you personally, I would love you if I got to know you. And please feel free to reach out to me. Share share your story. Share where you're at in life and, and what you're struggling with. Um, 
those, those kinds of stories inspire me to keep going and to keep improving and to get myself to a place where I can further help other people. I feel that's my life's calling. So I love you and I hope you have a fantastic day. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, you've just listened to Philosopher's Forge. Thank you so much for being here today. The fact that you took the time out of your busy day with so many other potential uses of your time to listen to this podcast is proof that you're hungry for change. As with any kind of progress or growth, the key is consistency over time. That being said, I'll see you next time.